My name's Richard Buskin. My name's Eric Taros. My name is Christine Keeler. Drug dealers, call girls, kinky orgies involving members of the ruling class, possibly even royalty, a government minister sharing a mistress with a Russian spy, a suicide, and a cover-up. The good old cover-up, eh? Uh, It's always worse than the crime, Richard, isn't it? Yep, as we know and as we're still finding out. So what do you know about the Profumo affair? Well, first off, I I must say, when you talked about the Profumo scandal and... I always thought of what we now, what you were just telling me about as the Christine Keeler scandal. You know, we don't really hear much about this. This is kind of a thing that I've heard a little bit about here and there over the years, never understood the complete significance, knew it had to do something to do with government and, and all of that. But, but basically, when you said the Profumo scandal, I'm thinking, isn't that some sort of uh, fragrance? Profumo by Ardley. It's scandalous. Ah, uh, yes. I think maybe I need to put you in the picture what this is all about. Well, well, yeah, I mean, all I knew is pretty model, young girl, mixed up with something in the government. The next thing you know, Harold Wilson is the prime minister. That literally is about it. Well, it was a hell of a lot more than that, I can tell you. It basically rocked Britain in 1963 as much as Beatlemania did. I was going to say, I thought Beatlemania rocked Britain in 1963. Well, what we're doing here is because Christine just died. She died um, in December. And I thought, you know, this is a great opportunity to actually not only revisit the Profumo affair, but also see it in sort of juxtaposed with 
the rise of Beatlemania, while featuring records from both sides of the Atlantic that topped the British charts at the various points in this story. Some of them with pretty appropriate lyrics. Not all, but some. Yes. There's been this theory that, you know, Beatlemania served as a distraction uh, from the Profumo affair and, you know, all the inherent scandal. But that's very sort of simplistic. It's a bit like saying how the Beatles basically dragged America out of depression following the Kennedy assassination, and that's why they were so big. I mean, it's way more complex than that. You know, things always are, but you got to admit this, it's an interesting parallel. And, and certainly for us in America that knew nothing about this scandal outside of a few things, mm. uh, it fascinates. It, it is very thought-provoking to me that maybe there is a connection, maybe more of a connection uh, than I ever would have guessed. Could it be that the Beatles twice were uh, an excuse to change the subject? I, I'd say that is fair. That That's a, a fair comment, a fair assessment. Um, you know, in the case of the Profumo affairs, we're going to see what does happen is that, that when matters sort of come to a head in the Profumo case, so Beatlemania is beginning to sort of really hit its stride in the UK. And that's something also for American audiences, okay, you know, who think that the Beatles story really started in February of 64. What we're going to illustrate on this show is how Beatlemania was really in full throttle in Britain right the way through 63. You know, it, it was growing and growing and growing. And then it, you know, it really basically peaked towards the end of the year. Well, I've been actually a proponent of that for a long time, too. In fairness, most Americans who are Beatles fans will will default to uh, uh, November of of 63 and say, OK, it began with, you know, Sunday night at the London Palladium or the Royal Variety Show or they'll they'll the the myth that we're given over here is, is that it was the late fall of 63 that Beatlemania began. But as you and I know, there's plenty of forensic evidence uh, that it started a lot earlier. Absolutely. And stay tuned, listeners, because you're going to hear some stuff that you haven't heard before. Oh, absolutely. I've uh, I've spoken to some uh, very uh, good friends. I've, I've had a deep dive into the vault. So there are some secret things in there. Um, I'd like to thank right now the mystery collector. He knows who he is, who uh, supplied a very exciting little piece of audio. So indeed, stay tuned. Given, you know, all the sort of mystery and secrecy involving the Profumo affair that we've even got secrecy revolving around our show here. Well, yeah, I mean, it's in keeping, you know, and one of the things I think that's interesting about our show today is, is that you can draw some parallels to what's going on today. Isn't it funny? There's always the Russians involved. Always the Russians and always a cover up. They just no one ever learns. And the cover up is the problem. Ask Nixon. Oh, God. Yeah. And ask some others as well. So we've we've established it's not a fragrance, the Profumo affair. Right. So. What is it? Well, why don't we first take a look at some of the main characters, some of the main players in, in this scandal? Fair enough. We'll start with John Profumo. He was born in 1915. So at this point, you know, in the early 60s, he's in his mid-40s. He was descended from minor Italian aristocracy on his father's side, Profumo. He inherited the title of Baron Profumo upon his father's death in 1940, which was the year he became a Conservative MP, Member of Parliament. 
mar- he married the Irish-born actress Valerie Hobson in 1954. Are you familiar with Valerie Hobson? Oh, I think she made movies as far back as the 30s when she was like a teenager, did she not? Well, you may well have seen her as Baroness Frankenstein. That's the one I'm... In, th- yes, that's yeah, it. Yeah. In Bride of yeah. Frankenstein, 1935. And, and that was the same year that she was also in Hollywood's first werewolf film. Werewolf of London. You got it. And she appeared in Great Expectations in 1946 and Kind Hearts and Coronets in 49. In 1960, Macmillan appointed Profumo Secretary of State for War. Lovely job title. And that's what he was when this scandal hit. Looks older if you look at the pictures now, but a rising star politically uh, had the pedigree, right? Um, yeah, I mean, he's described often, I see, as sort of dashing and handsome. I'm not sure I'd go that far. It's, you know, they sort of reserve these kind of epithets for, you know, royalty. Everyone's beautiful and stunning. Really? Which royal family? <laughs> They're maybe looking at the Swedish royal family. but Christine Keeler. She was born in 1942. She was still in her late teens when the scandal began. She was raised by her mother and stepfather in a Berkshire house. I know you'd pronounce it mostly Berkshire, but Berkshire. Oh, no, we say Berkshire as well. Now, it was not a trailer park, so the romantic stories of her mom raising her in a trailer park someplace were were not right? Well, actually, the home that they lived in was constructed from two converted railway carriages. Oh, dear me. Picture that. Yeah, you know, this is, you know, just after the war when... Around, I mean, I remember in the mid-60s, so 20 years after the war, and there were still bomb sites around London and people wow. living in prefabricated housing. Jeez. Yeah. So she, as a child, she suffered from malnutrition. She was sexually abused as a teenager by her mother's lover and his friends. She started modeling at age 15 in a Soho dress shop. She gave birth to a son at 17 after an affair with an African-American Air Force sergeant. And uh, the the child actually was born prematurely and died after six days. That same year, 1959, she began working as a topless dancer at Murray's Cabaret Club in Soho. And according to her, the patrons there could look but couldn't touch. Among them, Dr. Stephen Ward. Ah, now here's a character that I find fascinating, Dr. Stephen Ward. Yeah. Uh, one of these people that seems to be a, a hanger around of uh, almost like a culture vulture or a, uh, somebody who's, who's uh, upwardly mobile, I guess would be the expression. That's one way of putting it. I- interestingly, he was an English vicar's son. The dirty vicar. <laughs> he was born in 1912 had a variety of nondescript jobs before studying to become an osteopath at a college in Missouri, of all places, during the mid-1930s. He was posted to India during the war. He counted Mahatma Gandhi among his patients. I think he also, Churchill, I think he also worked on, did he not? Well, yes, that's, yeah, after the war, he became a society osteopath. He treated anyone from Churchill, as you say, to Lord Astor who we're going to hear more about soon. Oh, Lord Astor, yes. According to what we know about Stephen Ward, he was a sexual voyeur more than a participant. He became known for throwing socially eclectic parties that would you know, have peers and politicians, celebrities, and pretty working-class girls, some of whom he enjoyed mentoring. Well, well, you know, when you think about it, though, that's the kind of guy... I, I feel bad when you say certain cast certain aspersions on 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 this guy only because 
it seems of all of the tragic tales in what we're about to hear about, this is he is his is the most tragic. It's almost like high and low art, you know. He's taking these people of high society, and he knows what makes them tick. You know, they they could have all have said no to when he uh, introduced them to these pretty young working class girls. They didn't. He was supplying a need. What we're going to see is he ends up getting convicted of a crime that he didn't commit. People could question his morals, his ethics, but the guy wasn't a criminal. Uh, Lord Astor introduced him to his social set and let him stay and entertain at a riverside cottage on his Cliveden House estate in Buckinghamshire. The mansion there had served as a home to royalty and the British aristocracy, including Nancy Astor. Have you heard of her? American-born? Yes. And she was actually the first female member of Parliament. So Ward's guests at the cottage would often mingle with Astor's guests at the mansion, sometimes in and around the swimming pool, because they could all use the pool. Having studied at London's Slade School of Fine Art, he'd also developed a profitable sideline as a portrait artist. Yes, I've actually seen his work, and uh, there's, there's some films online. I think it's British Pathé that actually made a little featurette about him. Have you ever wanted to be a famous opera singer or an archaeologist? To most of us in more ordinary careers, these are just idle dreams. But let's introduce a London osteopath who, after reaching the top of his profession, decided he'd like to conquer another field. And, as you'll discover, he looks like succeeding. The second subject is art, and these talented hands belong to Dr. Stephen Ward. His subject on this occasion is surprisingly solemn but unmistakably Terry Thomas. The average artist often needs several sittings, but Dr. Ward often finishes a portrait like this in about ten minutes. Mr. Macmillan, he did without the benefit of a sitting. Among his subjects, and the drawings are out there on the internet, you can see them, Prince Philip, Princess Margaret, Harold Macmillan, the Prime Minister, Sophia Loren, as you said, Terry Thomas, and Christine Keeler, who lived with him on and off in what she described as a platonic brother-sister type relationship, or maybe more like father-daughter being that, you know, he was in his 40s, she was in her late teens. And this was also in between her shacking up with assorted boyfriends, including the notorious slum landlord Peter Rackman, and also with fellow Murray showgirl Mandy Rice Davies, who also became Rackman's mistress and lived for a few months at Ward's Wimpole Mews home. Wimpole Mews is in the centre of London. Wimpole Street, you've heard of the Barretts of Wimpole Street. It's actually where a lot of the society and so upmarket doctors practice. Well, speaking of which, uh, our favorite upmarket doctor, uh, a certain uh, Richard Asher. That's right. Uh, lived at 57 Wimpole Street, right around the corner from the Muse. Yes. Uh, so, so all of this fun was happening right around the corner from where Paul McCartney was living. I should say that a Muse in London, they're very narrow streets, often cobblestoned, and the homes often converted carriage houses. But, but very exclusive now, very, and, and very we must exclusive. point out that Muse is spelled M-E-W-S as opposed to M-U-S-E. And of course, uh, as we know, Christine Keeler was a Muse who lived on a Muse. Very good. You, know, you love my segues. I, I do. You are the Sultan of Segway. Thank you. Thank you very much, my subject. And then we come to the quote-unquote Russian spy, Yevgeny, or Eugeny Ivanov, who was born in 1926. He was appointed as an assistant naval attaché at the Soviet Embassy in London in March of 1960. I'm sorry, his name again, did you say his name was Eugene Humpalot? 
we'll, I'm we'll sorry, be, I didn't. We'll catch be the coming last name. to some of his pseudonyms. Oh, okay, thank you. When Stephen Ward expressed a desire to travel to Moscow to sketch the Soviet leaders, the Daily Telegraph newspaper editor Sir Colin Coote, who himself had intelligence contacts, introduced Stephen to Ivanov, and. Ward entertained Ivanov at his Wimpole Muse home and also at his Cliveden cottage. Wait a minute. Stephen Ward wanted to go to the Soviet Union to draw who? Some of the Soviet leaders. That that uh, is. D- d- wait a minute. What? D- at the height of the Cold War, and we've got this osteopath who's connected all over the place to to British society, and right up to the to the top, right? Prince Philip. I, I yep. don't think Philip sat for him, but you know he he worked from a picture. They didn't go after him for doing the picture. So wait a minute. How does some guy all of a sudden say, oh, I think I'm going to go to the Soviet Union. I, I smell a problem there. Well, yeah, and I don't know if that is actually true. That's what I've read. You know, I, I haven't heard Ward talk about it. That's where, you know, allegations that Ward was a Russian spy. Even Christine Keeler mentioned that he was spying for the Russians. But that's been hotly disputed. I mean, it's emerged since his death that British intelligence, MI5, recruited Stephen Ward to try to flip Ivanov over to their side via what's known as a honey trap, luring him with sex. MI5, from what I understand, contacted this guy, Stephen Ward, who was connected and was looking, who who also they knew plenty about his his personal habits, and he had a a little success with... uh, uh, people of society hooking them up with girls, and yeah, set a honey pot, a honey trap, whatever they call it, yeah. for um, for this Russian guy. Get some blackmail material on him, and and get him to start flipping secrets. But something went terribly wrong. It did. So let, let's look at the chronology here and get a bit of historical context. January of 1961, the Portland spy ring was busted. It went to trial that March. It emerged that two of the participants, Morris and Lona Cohen, who were going under the pseudonyms of Peter and Helen Kroger, had worked with the American spies, um, including Ethel and Julius Rosenberg. I'm sure you know those names. They were both executed for their crimes back in June of 53. Yeah. Right. So you had that little spy scandal. Then in May of 61, George Blake was found guilty of spying for the Soviets and sentenced to 42 years in prison. He actually would end up escaping in 1966, fleeing to Russia, and he's still there, aged 95. Then June of 61, Christine Keeler 
accompanied Stephen Ward to London's Notting Hill neighbourhood, which in those days wasn't sort of as upmarket as it is now. Very West Indian, I think. In Very those days, West Indian. It? it still is. We have the Notting Hill Carnival. But at that time, it was pretty run down. Lots of West Indian music joints and drug dealers roaming the area. And it was at a place called the El Rio Cafe that she met the Jamaican jazz singer and petty criminal Aloysius Lucky Gordon. <laughs> oh, yeah. Lucky Gordon. Yeah, Lucky Gordon. We're going to hear more about him in a minute. Did he get lucky? Oh, in a way, and then he got very unlucky. Um, soon after they met, they, they got into an affair. I mean, you know, the thing about Christine was she was available to a lot of guys. You know, I, I, now let me step in again. These... Uh, Christine and uh, Mandy are, and, and in a sense, John Profumo and certainly Ward are ahead of their time, mm. okay? I, I think that uh, a few years later, all of this behavior would be kind of okay. The sexual revolution, the pill, all that stuff. Um, it's, it's so, how come it's okay when a guy can kind of sleep around? I've right. always felt what's good for the gander is good for the goose, just me. Mm. No, I, I agree with you. And you're right about, you know, that's one way of looking at it ahead of her time. I mean, you know, people branded her a prostitute, a cool girl, a slut, you know, you name it. But the fact is, she was just free and easy. She had, you know, an easygoing lifestyle. She was enjoying life. And this, as we're going to see, really kicks off the swinging 60s in Britain. So anyway, getting back to this, her and Lucky Gordon, they get into a relationship which is marked by his jealousy and possessiveness and, and violence, which included two days when he held her hostage and repeatedly forced himself upon her. So that's June of 61. And it's the following month, the weekend of July 8th and 9th, 1961, when Keeler is among the weekend guests at Stephen Ward's Cliveden Cottage. John and Valerie Profumo are there, among Lord Astor's guests at the main house. That's when 46-year-old Profumo first sets eyes on 19-year-old Keeler. She emerges naked from the swimming pool on the Saturday night, and he's introduced to her while she's trying to cover herself with a towel. Well, I'd say that's quite an entrance when you think about it. Most certainly is. I'm a walking in the She's initially unaware of who he is, but she's impressed that he's married to an actress and decides, in her words, to have a bit of fun with him. So it's also possible, you know, that Profumo had already encountered her at Murray's nightclub because it's come out that the guy wasn't always playing at home in his marriage and he frequented a lot of questionable venues for a high-profile married man. Well, funny you had mentioned that because his, his predilection for dangerous women and, and uh, putting himself into dangerous situations goes way, way back. Apparently, pre-war in the 1930s, he got involved with a German spy, a certain Gisela Weingott. Yeah, that just came out recently, didn't it? 
Yeah, but it, it's kind of one of these theories I have is you just don't wake up one day and say, hey, I think I'm going to become an adulterer this morning. This only came out in November about this Gisela Weingard thing. I'll bet you there'll be more coming out about this guy over the years. Yeah, very possibly. I, what I should point out is that when he had a fling with this German woman in the 1930s, he was a student. He wasn't married at the time. Um, later on, she was a Nazi spy, you know, a German sympathizer. And after the war, he was in contact with her. And uh, her husband was none too happy, apparently, when he found letters from Profumo to his wife. And, and he was dumb enough, by the way, in both cases, to write letters to his girlfriends on, like, official government stationery. I know. <laughs> I know. Amazing. It's, it's the arrogance of power. Uh, or stupidity. Yeah. Yep, take your choice. Well, anyway, so that Saturday night, the two of them encounter each other around the pool. The next day, everyone reconvenes around the pool, and that's when Eugenie Ivanov joins the proceedings. Profumo, very attracted to Christine, he promises to get in touch with her, but that night she actually goes back to London accompanied by Ivanov and seduces him. That was Stephen Ward intervening, saying, uh-oh, wrong guy making eye contact with uh, pretty young Christine, and 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 basically asks uh, Ivanov to take Christine back to the muse, back to the place they share. The day that I met Jack Perfumo was, in fact, the day that I came back and uh, jumped into bed for the first and only time with um, Ivanov. Don't ask me why I did that, but anyway, there you are. We've got a bottle of vodka and got so sloshed. I think uh, that she seduced me, and I, I was in bed with her. Here's the wrinkle in MI5's plans, right? Is Profumo getting involved? That's not supposed to happen here. They want Christine maybe to seduce Ivanov. Absolutely, yeah. And then see if there are ways luring him with that to be a double agent. But... Profumo getting involved in this, not a good idea. Reminds us of President Kennedy sharing a mistress with the head of the Chicago mob, Sam Giancana. Well, one thing about the president, he was very generous and he shared many things with many people. Oh, yes. Um, some included women. That's right. Man of the people. <laughs> so they say. <laughs> now, as the parallel to this, what's also going on in Beatle world is that at this time they were playing the top 10 club during their second Hamburg stint. They recorded with Tony Sheridan during that stint. But this weekend, you know, on the Friday, July the 7th, Ringo's 21st birthday. Oh, yes. And also at this time, the first issue of Mersey Beat. <laughs> July the 12th, 1961, 
Stephen Ward reported on the weekend's events to MI5. He told them about Profumo meeting Ivanov and being attracted to Keela, and also about Ivanov asking him for information regarding the possibility of arming West Germany with nuclear weapons. Mid-July of 61, Profumo contacts Keeler a few days after meeting her at Cliveden and their affair, which she described as a, a screw of convenience, which also saw him offer to set her up in a flat, lasted, according to her, just a few weeks until the end of August. They usually got together at Wimpole Mews when Ward wasn't there, but on one occasion, they did so at Profumo's Regent's Park home when his wife was away. I mean, again, talk about stupid. This is going to well, come back to haunt him. I, I'm seeing the pattern of a danger guy, you know, a guy that, that's a thrill seeker. Yeah, a thrill seeker, and as I said, also that arrogance, you know, that they, can, they got away with it so far, they can continue to get away with it. I mean, Bill Clinton being another case in point. <laughs> So Profumo, impressing her, he borrowed a fellow MP's Bentley to drive her around London. He also introduced her to a former Secretary of State for Air, Viscount Ward, and gave her assorted small gifts. He gave her £20 to give to her mother. Keeler would later assert that she didn't give in to Stephen Ward's request for her to obtain confidential information from Profumo. And I think, actually, the whole notion of her doing that is pretty ridiculous and far-fetched, that she would be asking him for secrets about Britain's nuclear programme and him divulging those secrets. He later on also confirmed that no secret information ever exchanged hands between them. I think that was a convenient way to prosecute and to demonize and, uh, you know, that's – to me, she's a 19-year-old girl. He's an old kind of pervy middle-aged guy. That doesn't sound like pillow talk to me. I agree. August 9th, 1961. Informed by MI5's Director General, Sir Roger Hollis, about Profumo's involvement with Ward's social circle, the Cabinet Secretary, Sir Norman Brooke, who was a senior policy advisor to the Prime Minister, spoke with Profumo, and he warned him about the dangers of this, you know, especially given Ward's unreliability. They don't know also if Ward is really on board with them or if he's playing a double game. Profumo declined Brooke's request to help secure Ivanov's defection, but later that day he wrote Keeler a letter. Darling, in great haste and because I can get no reply from your phone, alas, something's blown up tomorrow night and I can't therefore make it. I'm terribly sorry, especially as I have to leave the next day for various trips and then a holiday, so won't be able to see you again until sometime in September. Blast it. Please take great care of yourself and don't run away. Love, Jay. Some pundits believe that this letter signalled the end of the affair. Keeler claimed it ended a little bit later after she'd refused to stop living with Stephen Ward. He wrote me two or three letters, uh, two letters before that, actually, but that letter was the last letter he wrote, and in fact, I never saw him after that, and that was in August of, um, 61. So a secret it must stay And you don't know
backstory, August the 13th, the border between East and West Berlin was closed and barbed wire fencing was erected. That which we came to know as the Berlin Wall? Yeah, absolutely. So this is all going on at this time, right? So paranoia of Reds Under the Beds was really in full force still. This man could be a spy. Any one of these people could be a spy. This is the story of five real spies, a ring of spies. Headlines that made world news. Names that added a shattering new chapter to the records of espionage. What kind of people are these who held the safety of a nation in their hands? Why did they do it? How were they caught? The secrets of treason. The startling facts about the spies who lived in this very bungalow at number 45 Cranley Drive, Ricelip, Middlesex. Behind this door were all the tools the gadgetry of the men and women who form that sinister circle, a ring of spies. How many more of these secret agents roam our cities undetected, unknown? How do you recognize a spy? The man next to you may be a spy. November of 61. Christine moves to her own flat on Dolphin Square, Pimlico, southwest London, and there she entertains friends, some of whom possibly paid her for entertaining them. We're not clear on that. But after Lucky Gordon again held a hostage for two days, she had him arrested and charged with assault before dropping the charge. November the 9th, in parallel, Brian Epstein's first cavern visit. December the 9th, the Beatles performed for 18 people in order shot, so not a whole lot of... Beatlemania going on in Aldershot. You know, from what you're telling me, Christine may have been entertaining more people than the Beatles that night. <laughs> That's right. 20 sailors trapped in her bedroom. Oh, no, I'm not going to cast it. I'm defending Christine afterwards, too. Okay, it's Christine, but... and I'm, I'm the advocate of uh, Ward and Christine. If I were a tower of strength, I'd walk away. I'd look in your eyes, and here's what I'd say. I don't want you. January the 4th, 62, that's when the Beatles topped the Mersey Beat pole. And then we jump into the heart of 62, because basically this affair is over very quickly. It was a very short affair. Well, I've gone. Didn't last longer than six weeks, the most. Two, eight weeks, the very most. By the end of August, I never saw Jack Perfumo again. Even though... Some people know about it and were concerned about it. The fact that it had ended, I think they thought that they'd moved past it. No such luck as we're going to find out. Speaking about topping the pole, which I'm sure Profumo did many times, uh, this is not publicly known information at this time, right? All of this is happening, this timeline. The, the public knows nothing about this until one little night. Well, we're going to see. 
Now we're in the summer of 1962, so we're possibly even close to a year since the affair ended, certainly a year since it began. June the 6th to July the 31st of 62, the Beatles played 62 live engagements around Liverpool, also did their first recording sessions for EMI and the BBC. So things are really picking up on that front, as we know. July of that year, a gossip column in the society magazine Queen hinted at the Profumo Ivanov Keeler sex triangle because, as as we know, you know this had been reported by Stephen Ward to MI5, and word began to get out. You may remember Queen magazine actually in a hard day's night when Lennon sees Ringo reading a copy of it. Hey, he's reading the Queen. That's an in joke, you know. Oh well. It, it, it was a very, very well-known, very influential magazine at that time. So under the heading, sentences I'd like to hear the end of, was one stating, called in MI5, because every time the chauffeur-driven Zills, which was a Russian car, drew up at her front door, out of her back door into a chauffeur-driven Humber, which was a British car, slipped, dot, dot, dot. Mr. Perfumo. Well, that's what it was leaving space for. At that time, actually, Keeler and Mandy Rice Davies were in New York trying to launch their modelling careers. That never went anywhere. Little doll, it seems ages since we kissed. Little doll, think of all the fun we've missed. Because it ain't right to want to keep on dancing. There won't be any time left for romancing. Come outside. What for? Come outside. What's the rush? There's a lovely moon out there. Cold outside. Come outside. Why? Come outside. You do keep on. While we got time to spare. I want another tweet. Now I went and promised your old man that we'd be. Ten seems we got just one more drive, then we'll be starting home again. Come outside, get lost. Come outside, go and ask Lil. There's a lovely moon out there. Go, people. Come outside, give over. Oh, come outside, belt up. While we got time to spare Why don't you listen to the beat? Little doll, I know the band ain't bad Little doll, I'm a-getting kind of mad Cause it ain't right to wanna keep on dancing There won't be any time left For romancing Come outside Lay off! Come outside Come outside. All right. Come outside. Not for too long. While well, we got time for a bit of slap and tickle over. Oh, slap and tickle you in a minute. I'll come out for a bit of snotty, darling. Cool, you know, I'll be the shade. Yeah, I know, a little marvellous here. I can't stop for too long, though. Only five minutes. I've got to go. Yeah, all right, then, yeah. August the 18th of 1962, Ringo's first official gig as a Beatle. I was just going to say that, yes. But the following month, when they were now embarking on their recording career... That's when Christine Keeler began a relationship with 
Johnny Edgecombe. Who was an, this guy was an Antiguan-born pimp and petty criminal who'd served prison time, and he ran an illegal drinking drugs den in premises rented from the slum landlord Peter Ackman. He'd closed down this joint after Lucky Gordon had threatened to inform the police about it. I mean, these guys didn't like each other. But they shared similar taste in women. They certainly did. And Edgecombe actually became a jazz promoter at this point, dealing dope to the musicians. October of 62, meanwhile, the Admiralty clerk, John Vassal, was jailed for 18 years after being found guilty of spying for the Soviets, who'd been blackmailing him by threatening to reveal his homosexuality. Which, by the way, was a, was an, uh, a jailable offence in those days. It most certainly was, yep, until later in the decade. So this was really embarrassing for the Macmillan government, okay? You know, again, this is setting the ground for what's to come. And actually, the Macmillan government really resented the sensationalist reporting by the press. And so that was going to lead to trouble for the press, actually. But in the meantime, that month, October the 16th to the 28th, is when the world held its breath, because that was the Cuban Missile Crisis. October the 27th of 1962... Informed by Keeler about how Gordon had held her hostage and assaulted her after she'd tried to end their affair, Johnny Edgecombe attacked Gordon with a knife at the legendary, very influential Soho jazz R&B venue, the Flamingo Club. The following year, by the way, that's the Beatles and Peter Blake would visit it in September of 63. Flamingo was a really, really well-known venue at that time. Hmm. So uh, there's a fight between Gordon and Edgecombe Gordon ends up with facial wounds, which required 17 stitches. And when Edgecombe asked Keeler to find him a solicitor before surrendering to the police, she refused and ended their relationship and promised to actually testify against him. This is the time bomb that gets set off because in December of 62, December the 14th to be precise, Edgecombe took a taxi to Stephen Ward's Wimpole Muse home and he demanded to see Christine Keeler. She wasn't living there at that time. As I said, she'd moved into her own flat, but she was visiting because Mandy Rice Davis was living there. Yeah, and, and Ward, I think, was not around then. He was out somewhere. He was not on the premises. If that I is correct. I got her one of those um, Reynolds Dufin minicab. The guy pull up over there, wait for me, and I knock on the door, and there. Uh, Mandy looked out the window. So I said, is Christy in there? She says, no. I said, don't give me that bullshit. I says, I'll just talk to her. No, she did. So eventually, uh, Christy and she came to the window. And I said, look, come on down and talk to me. You know, like, don't treat me like a goddamn salesman. Like, after all, we've been having the thing in there. Yeah? And then she threw a pound out the window and said, here you are. And that sort of flipped me out, because I was angry already. <laughs> and then I just pull out the shooter, and I start shooting the lock like they do in the movies. Six 
Seven shots are fired at the Wimpole News flat of Dr. Stephen Ward. That night on BBC News, Michael Aspel reads this story. After an incident in Wimpole Mews, West London, this morning, when a man was reported to have leapt from a minicab and fired shots towards the building, a 30-years-old West Indian was tonight charged with shooting, with intent to murder, Miss Christine Margaret Keeler. The shooting was in December, but I'd met Perfumer 18 months before that, in June or July of 61. So if the shooting hadn't have happened, nothing would ever have come out. This story did generate brief press mentions, with Keeler described as a freelance model, Rice Davies as an actress, which was pretty fanciful. <laughs> Hell of a nightclub singer, though. Did you ever see Mandy's uh, nightclub act? those days in Britain, someone firing a gun at someone's front door made national news. Over here in America, it's just like trick-or-treating. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we were just picking up on your bad habits. When we sneeze, you guys catch a cold, it seems. Christmas Eve of 62, Keeler was irritated with Ward at this point that had some sort of falling out. So she went to a Baker Street nightclub and ran into, wouldn't you know it, a former Labour Member of Parliament named John Lewis. Lewis really didn't like Stephen Ward because Ward had earlier introduced one of Lewis's girlfriends to a lesbian who'd lured her away from Lewis. So he's got an agenda against Ward and when Keeler tells him about how Ward's involved with Profumo and Ivanov you know she's got loose lips at this point Lewis sets about having Ward named as a national security risk who's been living off immoral earnings immoral earnings I love that uh, yeah I know and and this will subsequently get accomplished courtesy of a Labour MP called George Wig W-I-double-G who had his own issues with Profumo so, you know, things are beginning to come together here. The perfect storm. And as you can see, the stars are beginning to align themselves in a pretty negative way.
January the 13th of 63, now we're into 63. The Beatles make their first national TV appearance on Thank You Lucky Stars, performing Please Please Me, which was broadcast on January the 19th. Three days after that broadcast, Ivanov was actually recalled to Moscow by the Soviet government. Christine Keeler, now she's like on the outs with Ward. As I said, she's, you know, been talking about her affair with Profumo and Ivanov in an indiscreet way. And at this point, she decides to cash in her chips and try to sell her story to the newspapers. Many of those papers are actually nervous. You know, it wouldn't be today, but they were back then. They didn't want to get sued. Well, there was now a government inquiry into how they'd covered the Vassal spy case. As I said, that would be very embarrassing for the government. And the government had retaliated by opening this inquiry into press conduct. Obviously didn't go anywhere, judging by how the British paparazzi has behaved ever since. Two newspapers, the Sunday Pictorial, which would soon become the Sunday Mirror, and the News of the World were the only ones that did show some interest. And the News of the World actually didn't want to get into a bidding war, which is kind of surprising. Again, times change. So Keeler accepted the Sunday Pictorial's offer, which was £200 down and an agreement for a further 800 upon publication. That's like basically... Today, giving her £4,000 and then 16000 coming later. You could, yeah, I mean, I remember a time when, you know, you could live off £1,000 a year quite well. Right. So it was good money, not a fortune, but good money. And so she supplied the paper with that letter that she had from Profumo, which became known as the Darling Letter, because that's how he addressed her in it. And so she supplied the paper with that letter While the News of the World, for its part, not doing the story, alerted Stephen Ward and Lord Astor, and they in turn told John Profumo. So they know that she's basically gone rogue. And when Profumo's lawyers tried to talk her out of going ahead with this story, she basically demanded money in return. And I don't know what that sum was, but it was enough to prompt them to consider suing her for extortion. Stephen Ward, meanwhile, gets onto the Sunday pictorial and says that her story is mainly all lies and he threatens to sue the paper if if they run the story. So the paper basically gets cold feet, pulls the story and cancels the offer to Keeler, although she ends up keeping the £200 down payment. The letters were not of a deeply compromising nature or anything like that. From who to who? Uh, they were from Mr. Profumo to Mr. Miss Keeler. Mm-hmm. And um, I took steps to uh, remove these letters, one of which um, had been sold to a newspaper at a time when the involvement of uh, Mr. Profumo was completely unknown to the public. Why did you do that? Um, he was a friend. I felt it was the least I could do under the circumstances. They didn't print my story. They printed a story by Stephen instead. And so I went away with nothing. I exchanged um, an article uh, in a newspaper uh, for this letter and only for money was sufficient to cover the legal expenses to which I'd been put in this matter. You weren't in any way selling your story? No, indeed not. I didn't profit at all by this. In fact, I think I could have said to have stuck my neck out 
uh, to have helped um, Mr. Profumo in this matter. Uh, the letter was returned to my solicitor and uh, thence to Mr. Profumo. And for a while, it did seem possible that um, Mr. Profumo's part in this affair could have been concealed altogether. At around this time, as I said, Keeler was blabbing her mouth all around the place and she told her story to a cop who basically did nothing with the information. At this point, Parliament is beginning to hear, you know, the MPs are hearing gossip about this, about Profumo's affair and about the incriminating letter. And so the government now is getting involved and it's an initial stance its law officers publicly accept the denials of Profumo and Macmillan does the same, sowing the seeds of his own political disaster. It's, you know, it's almost like a Monty Python skit. Eventually, even the government took notice. Yes, exactly. Now, I should say that, you know, Harold Macmillan had been in power for seven years at this time. He came in after the Suez Crisis which was, you know, a major humiliation for Britain. Anthony Eden was forced to resign. Macmillan came in as the new man, but he was part of the old guard, you know, what was known as the grouse shooting set. These crusty old aristocrats and upper-class guys. The old-school tie, the... uh, Yeah, and, and, you know, if you see Macmillan, he's this sort of jowly older guy, not really in touch with the younger generation, that's for sure. It was that mustache, you know, he should have lost the mustache. He needed a stylist. Well, he needed a lot of things. But uh, the fact is that he was part of this old guard and people were growing tired of him. This era in Britain was a time when uh, satire was really on the rise. We had the establishment club, you know, Peter Cook. We had... Beyond the Fringe, and in 1963, the TV show, that was the week that was. And we also have Private Eye magazine. So satire is really in vogue, if you like, and Macmillan is the guy with the target on his forehead. February of 1963, Beatlemania is really beginning to kick in. The Beatles' first nationwide tour, they're bottom of the bill to the teenage singer Helen Shapiro. But, you know, by the last night of that tour, March the 3rd of 63, they're closing the first half of the show. And in March of 63, actually, they start their second nationwide tour with Tommy Rowe and Chris Montez, two American singers. Of course, you know, Tommy Rowe, they'd covered his song, Sheila. Chris Montez, Let's Dance. I mean, that's one of the early songs that I remember, actually.
on the very first night of that second nationwide tour, the Beatles replace both Tommy Rowe and Chris Montez as the headliners. Yeah. Building rapidly throughout the year, there are local newspaper reports up and down the country about Beatles fans screaming at concerts, lining up for hours to get their tickets, and eventually this goes national. Yeah. March the 14th, Johnny Edgecombe's trial begins in court, and Christine Keeler is missing in action. She was supposed to, she subpoenaed or something to, she was supposed to show up, but she didn't. She was. But again, you know, can you imagine this making the newspapers these days? It would be an absolute nothing story. But then it was like a major story. And that the fact that she'd gone missing in action, the press was all over that. You know, they're not talking about the Profumo affair yet. They haven't got the guts to do that. But they're speculating on where she's gone and they're hinting at the Profumo connection. The way they're doing it is maybe having a story about Profumo, you know, on the front page of the papers, and then the story about Keeler next to it. Not connecting the two, but those who had an idea of what had been going on, they were connecting the dots. So that anyway, the court case, Johnny Edgecombe's court case, continued without her. He ends up getting convicted of the lesser charge of possessing a firearm with intent to endanger life, and he's sentenced to seven years in prison. We're all going on a summer holiday. No more working for a week or two. Fun and laughter on a summer holiday. No more worries for me. We're going where the sun shines brightly We're going where the sea is blue We've seen it in the movies Now let's see if it's true March the 21st, 1963 Private Eye published a very lightly disguised summary of all of the rumours that were now doing the rounds And here's where we get to these names that you alluded to We've got Mr. James Montese, who's obviously Profumo. Yeah. Keeler is Miss Gay Fun-Loving. Hmm. Stephen Ward is Dr. Spook. Yikes. And the Russian is Vladimir Bolokov. <laughs> That's the best one. Oh, yeah. Bolokov. <laughs> Meanwhile, though, the missing witness, Keeler, that is in full cry. And George Wig the opportunist Labour MP, he used parliamentary privilege, which basically gives him legal immunity, to publicly ask the Home Secretary, Henry Brooke, to categorically deny the rumours connecting, quote, a minister to Christine Keeler, Mandy Rice Davies, and the Johnny Edgecombe shooting. What I said in the House of Commons the other night could be regarded as sensational. My motive here was to, to bring to light um, certain facts which were being talked about right, left and centre um, and it arose in my case from an interest in, in, in security and I think there were certain aspects of the rumours about which there ought to be statements. Another Labour MP, Barbara Castle, 
She referred to the missing witness also there in Parliament and hinted at a perversion of justice. Interesting choice of words. Quite appropriate, eh? So Henry Brooke, Home Secretary, he's on the back foot here. He refuses to comment and basically suggests that both of these MPs should substantiate what they were insinuating. The following day, March the 22nd, things are beginning to now really pick up the pace. You know, there's a momentum, it's taking on a life of its own, and I'm sure Profumo is getting pretty worried. Because at the request of the Conservative Party leaders, and under advice from his lawyers, he ends up reading a carefully worded statement to a packed House of Commons. Miss Keeler and I were on friendly terms. There was no impropriety whatsoever in my acquaintanceship with Miss Keeler. He also warned, I shall not hesitate to issue writs for libel and slander if scandalous allegations are made or repeated outside the House. So again, the press has its hands tied here because there's threats of litigation. There was one from Ward, now from Profumo. But for all that, many of the MPs and, and journalists are unconvinced. You know, they smell a big rat here. For now, they're saying nothing. And Stephen Ward himself appears on independent television news, ITN, to refute all of the rumours. I've known Jack Profumo for about seven years. And I've just read the statement that he made in the House of Commons this afternoon. It's a dreadful thing that a man should be put in the position of having to do this as a result of entirely baseless rumours and insinuations that have been started by the press. I know them to be baseless because I was there when the meetings took place. And there is absolutely nothing of a sinister nature which can be attached to these occasions. I've been absolutely appalled to see the deceitful way in which an impression is created in people's minds, but at the same time those people aren't told specifically what the accusations are. Um, take the case of Captain Ivanov at the Soviet Embassy. I know this man, I've known him for about two years. I know him to be a man of great honour. I've never heard him once say anything detrimental to this country. I've never heard him be disrespectful to the Prime Minister. He was a loyal Russian and liked by everybody he met. And yet somehow he's been represented as a sinister figure and goodness only knows what sort of interpretation is being put upon the fact that uh, he uh, was a visitor to my flat. March the 25th, 1963, three days after Profumo's statement to the House, the press finally tracked down Christine Keeler. Actually, I think it's the Daily Express tracked her down in Madrid, Spain where she claimed to have been confused about the date of the Edgecombe trial and to have had a purely innocent relationship with Profumo and his wife. I mean, you know, at this point, it's kind of weird. She's playing a double game because she's been shooting her mouth off telling people about the affair. That's what has got the, you know, alerted the press. And now here she is basically backing Profumo and saying there was no affair. Uh, one of her statements to the press was, The trouble is, I'm 21. I've lived in the West End of London and frequently been to parties with well-known people present. Presumably, if I'd been 52 and a housewife from Surbiton, there would have been none of this trouble. And she's most likely, she was 
pretty spot on in some ways, but I think this was bigger than even she realised. I don't think Mr. Profumo would have been interested in a 52-year-old housewife from Surbiton. That, you're dead right. One day my luck will turn again. Especially with all the information I'm ready to spill if it doesn't. When I was in Spain, uh, the Express got hold of me and literally the British Council had said that was the only way I'd get back, by plane. But I admit that I did tell them. They, there was 13 reporters in the room and Perfuma had denied it and I denied it too. But they said to me, but it's true, isn't it, Christine, you know? And I admit, I did say, yes, it was true. That was my bad bit. April the 1st, 1963, April Fool's Day. The Metropolitan Police began investigating Stephen Ward's affairs. And, you know, this was just horrendous, really, because what's happening is that the government, again, can see Egg is going to be on its face and they've got to find a scapegoat. So the police end up interviewing 140, 140 of his friends, associates and patients. And they also kept a 24-hour watch on his home and they'd been authorised to tap his phone. So, you know, he's really on the rack at this point. And one of the interviewees, Christine Keeler, who at this point reversed her press statement and now admitted to the affair with Profumo while describing the interior of his Regent's Park home. I mean, that was the stupid uh, thing, as I said. Yes, it was very dumb of him. Really dumb. So now it's like, you know, almost like the birthmark that she can describe here. She, she's describing the inside of his home. Mandy Rice Davies, at the same time, is arrested for a driving licence offence. So they just trumped up some reason to get hold of her and arrest her. And they, they imprisoned her for eight days. I'm sorry, there's an interesting choice of words. Do you tr- trumped it up? Was was uh, Mueller involved in this by any chance? They're, they're, they're doing a bit of a witch hunt. I love it. Yeah, exactly. You see, the connections are endless. They are. So basically, they imprison her on some, you know, as I said, trumped up charge and start applying pressure on her to testify against Ward. After eight days, she caves in. The British press as I said, had its hands tied at this point. You know, they're making hints about things, but they're not saying anything. But the foreign press have no such problems. And so they'd been reporting on things. And Profumo, having threatened to sue, he's awarded costs and £50 damages against the British distributors of an Italian magazine that had insinuated his guilt. So that was like a shot across the bowels. You know, he's basically, he's threatened to sue and he's doing this so that the British press sits up and takes notice.
April the 18th, 1963, the day that the Beatles play in Swinging Sound 63 at the Royal Albert Hall. And again, the momentum for the Beatles is really building at the same time as the momentum in the Profumo affair is really building. It's them, uh, them lads from the pool with them far out haircuts. Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles! Jane Asher was in attendance. She was photographed in the Radio Times, which was like Britain's version of TV Guide. And that same day, Christine Keeler's attacked at the home of a friend by good old Lucky Gordon. So he's arrested and he, too, is pressured to testify against Stephen Ward. But he refuses. A man of high ethics. <laughs> Three days after that, April the 21st, 63, we have the Beatles performing their biggest gig to date in front of 10,000 people at the Empire Paul Wembley, now Wembley Arena. They performed actually as the penultimate act before Cliff Richard and the Shadows for the New Musical Express 1962-63 annual poll winners all-star concert. They actually hadn't won any awards because the poll had been conducted before the end of 62, but they were added to the bill because of their two number one singles. Please Please Me and From Me to You. Yeah. So, again, you know, April of 63, their star is rising very, very rapidly. Keep you by my side I got it 
May the 7th, 1963. Stephen Ward, by now, his personal and professional lives are absolutely in tatters because people are deserting him. They don't want to be named because a lot of his friends, a lot of his associates, are people who he's, you know, done his sort of introduction service for, right? You know, he's introduced them to pretty girls. Maybe some of them attended some of the orgies, which we're going to hear a little bit more about in a second. And so they don't want to be implicated in any of this. So all of a sudden, they just disappear. And once again, I think he probably figured those people would scatter. But uh, this is a guy who saw himself as a patriot. He was working for MI5, and I think he probably figured that they would set the record straight or back him up. He had a very curious contact. You know, one of his other naivetes is that he got a real name of a of an MI5 contact, the unfortunately named Mr. Wood. <laughs> yes, he, he had wood. Uh, he, he had wood, but then the wood disappeared when he needed it most. Absolutely, because, you know, his only way of proving that he'd been working for MI5 was this Mr. Wood. And when he calls MI5 and is told there is no Mr. Wood, he doesn't exist, we don't know who you're talking about, I mean, he really sees the writing on the wall at this point. Yeah, and, then he knows. Yeah, he's been sold out. Yeah, he, he really has. And in in the worst possible way, because, as you said, maybe he had an idea that some of his friends would scatter. I don't know that he thought all of them would, but no one came through for him. He was on his own and professionally the same thing, right? You know, this guy was mostly something of a social snob. He loved the connections that he had and he loved that the influence that he had amongst them. And so with that all gone, what's he really got to live for? So he's in a pretty desperate state. And he meets on May the 7th of 63 with Macmillan's private secretary, Timothy Bly. Not not to be confused with Captain Bly. Uh, I was going to say these names are right out of central casting. They're fantastic, aren't they? Absolutely brilliant. So he meets with him to ask, you know, for them to basically call off the police investigation and explain that he's been covering for Profumo, who, who's lied to the commons. You know, he's telling them this, and Bly does absolutely nothing. Eleven days later, May the 18th, that is the start of the Beatles' third nationwide tour, with Roy Orbison as the headliner. The following day, the 19th, Stephen Ward now wrote to the Cabinet Secretary, Sir Norman Brooke, with the same request that he'd had with Mr. Bly, you know, asking for the police investigation to be called off. Same outcome, nothing done. None of the newspapers will run his story. He wrote to Harold Wilson, who was now the opposition leader, the Labour Party leader, just come in um, after the death of Hugh Gateskill. And Wilson forwarded Stephen Ward's letter to Harold Macmillan. This guy, Harold Wilson, the more I learn about him, once again, much like the Beatles, much like uh, Keeler, much like Ward, is a guy ahead of his time. You know, in in the future, when he becomes prime minister, he's going to hook up and use celebrity to his advantage. And I, I sense much like Mr. Wig, he senses if this is handled a certain way, he's in. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's not sending the letter in a friendly way to Macmillan. He's doing it to show, look, we, you know, this is what's going on. The heat is on you, pal. Yeah, um, we wouldn't dream of using this against you, Mr. Prime Minister. But uh, if you look at this and you look at that now, we wouldn't use this against you. But can you imagine what some people might do with this? We've all got our rights, you know, Harold. That's the canny part of Harold Wilson. OK, so. 
what happens is Macmillan gets that letter from Wilson and then he, in turn, asks the Lord Chancellor, Lord Dillhorn, to look into security breaches. There's another name for you, what Dillhorn. What sort of horn? A Dillhorn. Is oh, it like, like, like a dill pickle. That's not helping. Two days later, May the 21st, 63, the Beatles make their first bill-topping appearance on BBC Radio Saturday Club. Of course, we've got a lot of those recordings now. And three days after that, they make their debut recording session for their own BBC radio series, Pop Goes the Beatles. Pop Goes the Beatles. So again, when people sort of saying, oh, you know, Beatlemania didn't start till later in 63, as you said, Sunday night at London Palladium. I mean, what are they talking about? They had their own radio series in May of 1963. And I'm I'm not saying that everyone who had their own BBC radio series had manic fans screaming and going nuts i get it but this was how big they already were on the strength of two number one hits and and a major album a major album if you go through all of those tapes the more complete tapes uh, as you know a project i'm involved in is trying to track down the complete shows from uh, you know pop goes the beatles and it's so obvious the hierarchy i mean the beatles are the stars they're the ones doing the talking and they have guests on there that are contemporary big acts but there's no question who's the top of the pyramid and you know you're talking spring of 63 yeah so basically after they make their debut recording session for pop goes the beatles they then continued the Roy Orbison package tour with two houses at the Granada Cinema in Walthamstow, East London. And they're soon going to be replacing him as the headliner. As George said in Anthology, it was actually a little bit embarrassing for them in a way because they loved Roy Orbison. And here they are replacing him as the headliner. He was really good about it. but uh, Well, again, I mean, you can sometimes things are dictated by the audience and anybody who thinks that Beatlemania started in November after the Royal Variety Command performance, mm. uh, well, here's some little bit of evidence we can play for them, Richard, because here we are, May 24th, Granada Cinema in Walthamstow. And and just to give you an idea, uh, this little clip we're going to play here, which is exceedingly rare, um, I, I've got a little bit of Roy, the tail end of a Roy Orbison song, um, Running Scared, which was one of his big, big hits. Um, and, and check out how you can basically hear a pin drop during his beautiful singing. Check out the audience reaction at the end of Roy, and then seconds later... The Beatles come on stage for their part and listen to the audience throughout the clips of the song I've included and especially at the end. That's a fantastic clip, Eric. Absolutely brilliant. I mean, who's actually heard that? Oh, uh, not a lot of people. Um, as I say, thanks very much to the Mystery Collector. Uh, some samples of that at the wrong speed were floating around on the internet a few years ago. And, uh, oh, it must be 10 years ago now. And uh, uh, a private sale was arranged for. Uh, and so I actually transferred that from the master tape, a little three-inch reel, and... Uh, the gentleman who sold it to the mystery collector, uh, you know, filled him in on some of the, uh, you know, 
the backstory on that. That was happening. There's another tape similar to that up in Carlisle uh, in the fall tour. Yeah. There's some you, you can see though early early on much as you could with swinging sound. Um, the swinging sound sample that we played earlier, you can hear a tepid reaction uh, for the the act preceding the Beatles, and then all of a sudden. Before the Beatles are even announced, you can hear the energy level come up, and the announcer, the compare, you know, says, "Oh, it's those guys with the funny haircuts from Liverpool," and the place goes nuts. And you know, they play their two number one hits. Uh, I I think that Beatlemania was well well in place by the spring of '63. Oh, totally. I mean, as you said, we've got the forensic evidence here. We've heard swinging sound '63 at the Albert Hall, where the kids are screaming, and here you hear it even more so at Walthamstow. I mean, that could have been January of '64, right? With those sounds, absolutely. And 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 there's another parallel because. Why do people cling to this idea historically? Well, it all happened with the Royal Variety, because that's how things have always been. And we don't like to challenge convention with uh, new evidence and new ideas. There's a parallel to this story of the Profumo affair. Right. And there's that Daily Mirror headline from, I think, October of 63, Beatlemania. And everyone said, oh, that's when Beatlemania was coined. It wasn't. You know, so as you said, it's just convenient for people. And unfortunately, you have journalists and authors who go for the convenient and then everyone else goes for the convenient, picking up on what they wrote instead of going back to the source and doing the proper research. Richard, you and I and some of our friends have rarely traveled the path of least resistance. uh, And most people just like to go with the flow, go with what's easy. Yeah. People such as us, it's very frustrating that the public is fed this misinformation and, and just runs with it. You know, it's not the public's fault. It's the fault of the people supplying that information. It's also desperately uh, alarming that the truth tends to come out 50 years later, 60 years later. Uh, you know, why is that? I wonder why they have all these gag orders on things. The same thing happens here in the U.S. where, you know, we won't ever get all the full information about the declassified Kennedy documents or whatever because it's just not convenient. And right. we don't want to – we want to wait till it's safely in the rearview mirror and uh, anybody who was uh, left alive who can remember the events will be safely gone. But what we hope we're illustrating in this show is, one, that Beatlemania took off way earlier than a lot of people think, and it took off in Britain, and that it wasn't dependent on, you know, circumstance or the political climate or anything like that. This was basically all about the Beatles, their music, their live presence, their allure. Yeah, and you could say that by the time things really get bad with the Profumo scandal, certainly things are up a a couple of notches in the Beatles world, and maybe they were used as uh, Operation Change the Subject a bit, as they were in the U.S. Because remember, at this same time, well, a few months later in the fall, the Beatles are putting out records in the U.S. on on obscure subsidiary labels that are picking up the rights to their stuff, like VJ and Tolly and, uh, you know, Mm. uh, but it, it... They didn't do anything until there was a need to be filled. Okay, so seven days after the Walthamstow gigs, May the 31st, 1963, John Profumo decides that he needs a break, so he takes his wife for a holiday in Venice. And as soon as they get there, there's a message at their hotel asking him to return as soon as possible. Doesn't sound good. Profumo now knows he's most likely in trouble, 
And it's only now that he actually confesses to the missus that he actually did have a fling with Miss Keeler. Hmm, I, I hope she didn't have any of those heavy ashtrays that were so prominent in the 60s. Yeah, well, you know, clearly within, not. Within throwing range. Yeah, that's right. I didn't see any dents on his head. June the 4th, 63. Profumo, now back in the UK, confesses to Timothy Bly, resigns from the government, resigns from Parliament. Prime Minister Macmillan is off on his holidays in Scotland. He's golfing in Scotland. Remind you of anyone? Uh, several. Yeah. And he gets informed by phone of what's happened. So basically, the shit has hit the fan. The following day, June the 5th of 63, that's when the resignation's publicly announced. And that same day, Lucky Gordon's trial for attacking Christine Keeler begins. Isn't it just perfect how everything is happening at the same time? There you go. Two days later, June the 7th, based on Christine Keeler's evidence, Gordon is convicted and sentenced to three years behind bars. The day after, June the 8th, Stephen Ward was arrested and charged with immorality offences. And the day after that, freed from John Profumo's libel threats, now that he's confessed to everything, the News of the World published its story. Because if you remember, they didn't run... You know, any story that they withdrew, they didn't want to get into a bidding war. Now they can do what they want. And they called it The Confessions of Christine, which sounds just like a salacious book or a movie. And they, in, in that, they portrayed Stephen Ward as a sexual predator and a probable Soviet puppet. Unbelievable. I mean, seriously, unbelievable. This poor guy. Talk about kicking somebody when they're down. Now, when I say a poor guy... Did he have great moral f- character or whatever? No, but, uh, you know, please. Who does? Please. Who does? Certainly not you. Uh, well, I've never claimed it, though. Uh, that, there's, a, there's a large difference. I resemble I'm claiming it all for me. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I'll take yours as well. <laughs> there's not much to take. Calling Christine Keeler, 500 pounds. Calling Christine Keeler, 1,000 pounds. Calling Christine Keeler, 2,000 pounds. Quite honestly, I I wasn't sorry. I knew that I could sell my story to the news of the world for a lot of money if Jack Profumo had um, resigned. And uh, I I must admit, by then, I, I didn't really care. Nice to get the money. Think about it for Ward. He's arrested on June the 8th. The following day, the News of the World publishes its story portraying him as a sexual predator and probable Soviet puppet. And on that day, the Sunday Mirror, formerly the Sunday Pictorial, publishes the Darling Letter that, you know, that uh, Keeler pr- provided them with, the letter that she got from Profumo. At this point, there are a lot of calls for Macmillan's resignation because it's like, you know, here's this old fogey. He was off on his golfing holiday in Scotland. He doesn't know what's going on with his own government and, you know, with his own government ministers. And here he was defending Profumo. He believed him and he's a fool. And then you've got at the same time, you've got uh, this uh, young Mr. Wilson, a dynamic guy, very savvy, who's 
going to be leveraging this by like, you know, we're not going to talk about the salacious elements of this, but we are going to talk about the security elements of this, because that's what's really important. Obviously, this 19-year-old girl was the holder of so many secrets mm. from uh, this minister, the minister of war. Was that what that was? What was his yeah. title? Yeah, yep. So the minister of war is really passing secrets to this teenager just so she can pass them on to the Russians, you know, for a little extra scratch on the side. Right. I mean, utterly ridiculous. Okay. So here we are, June of 63. Ward is under arrest. Profumo has resigned and the gloves are off. June the 13th of 63. There was a BBC TV interview with the leader of the House of Lords, Quintin Hogg is his name. Not oh, God. Sir, not not Sir Eaton Hogg, but Quintin Hogg. <laughs> Mr. Hogg. Yeah, I'm sure that's where they got it from, okay? Oh, yeah. And and he was actually Lord Helsham was his title. He was a very prominent politician, a very reputable politician, but also a guy known for his hot temper. And during the interview, he loses it. Of course there's a security problem. Don't be so silly. Uh, a secretary of state for war can't have a, a, a woman shared with a spy, or if he was a spy, without giving rise to a security risk. The question is not whether there was a security risk, but whether there was an actual breach of security. Be sensible. Let's recognize it what it is, a scandal. A great party is not to be brought down because of a squalid affair between a woman of easy virtue and a proved liar. This is the English example of roasted hog. There you go. But isn't it interesting, given today's political climate here in the U.S., how he's not prepared to defend his government colleague or his former government colleague here? I mean, he's basically quite disgusted by it all and saying that, you know, a great party shouldn't be brought down because of a squalid affair between a woman of easy virtue and a proven liar. Isn't that a great term, easy virtue? I know. I know. As if they'd say that today. Four days after that interview, June the 17th, 1963, there's a a debate in the House of Commons on Profumo's resignation. Harold Wilson accuses the Prime Minister and his colleagues of failing to identify and act on a clear security risk. So exactly as you said, you know, that's what he's been working up to. And now here it is. Macmillan answers him by saying he shouldn't be blamed for believing a colleague's repeated claims of innocence, which is... I suppose akin to uh, Donald Trump now saying that, well, he's asked Putin if, you know, there was any sort of collusion with the Russians in the election. And he says there wasn't. So he can't ask him anymore. No, that well, you know, and and that happens, as I say, collusion comes in funny ways, uh, you know, but uh, yeah, this was low hanging fruit, as they say. Yeah, exactly. So Macmillan is really, he's got no great argument here. Just that, you know, don't blame me for believing someone else. Absolutely. It depends on what so, is. What you mean by is. <laughs> right. So now here's another name for you for, for the collection. Conservative MP Nigel Birch. Hmm. Uh, yeah, he referred to Keeler in the House as, quote, a professional prostitute. I, Dear know. Me. I suppose, yeah, you, you have to differentiate between amateurs and professionals in this. Uh, yeah, well, he was right on top of that, obviously. Oh, very good. Very good. And what, and he also asked rhetorically, what are whores about? How did this guy not get sued? See, this is what was wrong. The class system was protecting people like this. Well, uh, but also they've got parliamentary privilege, right? They uh, can say what they want there. Gloria Allred, where were you when we needed you? I know. I know. So others in the House called Christine Keeler a tart, 
a poor little slut, and Ward was branded as a Soviet agent. But during the subsequent vote on the government's handling of the affair, even though the government won the vote, 27 Conservatives abstained. And that really fired up press speculation now that Macmillan's going to resign, that he's in an untenable position. His support is hemorrhaging. Either that or they all went to some of those parties that Mr. Ward threw. Well, June the 17th, 63, that was. Beatle trivia time. What happened the next night? Oh, yes. Well, June 18th would, of course, been the very uh, low-key party for Paul McCartney's 21st birthday. There you go. The one at which... Yeah, very classy. Well, I'm sure it was a classy affair until John beat up Bob Willer. I was going to say it was an evening of easy virtue. Three days later is when it actually generates the Beatles' first headline, real big national newspaper headline, the back page of the Daily Mirror. These days, the back pages of the British papers are all sports, but back then, not. And so that was the one where it had Beetle in Brawl says, sorry, I socked you. Meanwhile, the front page headlines were all about Macmillan's determination to remain prime minister. So, you know, this is great now. Here it is beginning to come together, not for any real associated reasons, but just here we've got this juxtapositioning of Macmillan on the front page, you know, of the mirror and the Beatles on the back page. And thankfully, the Beatles didn't resign. And thankfully... They were on Thank Your Lucky Stars, Summer Spin. Like that segue? I love it. Yeah, two days later, June the 23rd, 63, they topped the bill on an all-Merseybeat edition of Thank Your Lucky Stars. Now, uh, just to make sure, and so everybody knows that this, uh, this was not hosted by Christine Keeler's Lucky because he was already doing time at this point. Oh, oh my God. Yeah, I never thought of that. Lucky Gordon. That's right. Thank your Lucky Gordon stars. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> In June 63, following the Commons debate, the press really had a field day now, you know, and, and now things started getting more titillating, more scandalous. Did you say titillating? Yes. Try to control yourself here or you'll spurt. <laughs> It was all about decadence among the British ruling class, okay? You know, as I said, there was this the old boys' guard, the grouse shooting set, and now it's coming out not just about the uh, war minister and a Russian spy and Christine Keeler, but Mandy Rice Davies now goes public describing things such as a, a naked masked man who would serve as a waiter at the sex parties and... There were inferences that this person was either a cabinet minister, possibly even a member of the royal family. Could it be Prince Philip? There's a, yeah, I was going to say there's a new TV series where they're, they're making uh, references that maybe Philip was aware of all this and was a participant. So maybe he was the, the strange masked man. Yes, the naked masked not, man. It was the naked man. And it was not the Lone Ranger. So the master of the rolls, not the Rolls Royce, but it's called the master of the rolls, is second as a judge only to the chief Lord Justice was a man called Lord Denning. And oh, Lord Denning. Yes. yes. He's the one that had his sort of uh, whitewash report, I think. That's right? right. He was instructed by Macmillan to investigate these rumors and basically allay public fears. You know, it is. It's kind of designed as a whitewash. It was uh, the Warren Commission, essentially. Basically, yeah. It's what they all do, right? Yeah. 
June the 28th of 63, Stephen Ward was committed for trial on charges of, quote, living off the earnings of prostitution, no less. Uh, no, no evidence at all of prostitution, by the way, but he was committed for trial on that and also for procuring girls under the age of 21 to have sex with others. And he was released on bail. I'm confessing that I love you. Tell me, do you love me too? I'm confessing that I need you. Honest, I do. Need you every moment. In your eyes I read such strange things But your lips deny they're true Will your answer really change things Leaving me blue I'm afraid someday you'll leave me Saying can't we still be friends If you do you know you'll grieve me For all in life I'm confessing that I love you over again. I'm afraid someday you leave me. What has happened since March? Uh, a most amazing state of affairs. First thing that I became aware of was the fact that my patients and friends were being questioned by the police with a certain line of questioning, which disturbed me very deeply. What do you mean by uh, a certain line of questioning? Broadly this, uh, the line seemed to be to indicate that I'd somehow been living on immoral earnings uh, or having introduced people to men for money. Running a call girl racket? Well, there are questions in Parliament led me to believe that this could be so. I portrayed Stephen uh, because um, I felt that he was responsible for the situation that I found myself in having to go to court. And also, um, I betrayed him uh, about what he, he was actually up to. July the 22nd, Ward's trial actually began at the Old Bailey. And his defence counsel, a guy called James Burge, he asserted that the small contributions to household expenses made by Keeler and Rice Davies, along with loan re repayments, absolutely didn't amount to Ward living off their earnings from prostitution. There was also no evidence that they were actually prostitutes. I, I know that Keeler always denied that. Um, and, and right through her life, she was plagued with those accusations. It's a convenient uh, hot button issue in those days anyway, of course, you know, yeah. that diminishes people, diminishes what they are. So you don't have to worry about them. And the fact is also in 1963 in Britain, what also made, you know, the headlines, why, why this became a newsworthy story was that Keeler wasn't just putting it around and sleeping around, but she was doing it with these black guys, you know, a white woman with with black guys. And so that in and of itself was, was seen as scandalous by many at the time. Yes, thinly veiled racism, um, yeah. very thinly veiled. And very, yeah, yeah. somehow it makes it uh, all OK to uh, to trash this woman because uh, she had black boyfriends. Yeah, of course. I should also point out that Ward really didn't need their money. In those days, it's estimated his income was around £5,500 a year, which today would be about £100,000. And 
you know, he most likely was earning some extra as well with his sketching and things like that. So it could have been anywhere up to about £150,000. And he lived in a muse in central London. That's not exactly a council house. Right, right, exactly. Um, yet, you know, the prosecuting counsel accused him of, quote, the very depths of lechery and depravity, while the judge noted that none of Ward's society friends were speaking up for him. So they were using that against him as evidence of his guilt. Terrific, eh? You know, they, they set this whole thing up. They made him a pariah, and then they're using that as their evidence. Yeah, yeah, classic magician stuff. Look here, don't look yeah. there. I love also, you know, the hyperbole, you know, the very depths of lechery and depravity, as if no one had ever plummeted that far before. Yeah, yeah, of course not. And it's probably some of their beast friends. Of course. So it was also announced that Lucky Gordon's assault conviction had been overturned, yet the, the same judge failed to inform the jury that this was because Gordon's witnesses had testified that Keeler had lied under oath. So this would actually lead to her facing perjury charges and, and going to prison herself in 1964. Wow. Yeah. So, oh, I didn't realize she did any time. Yeah, she did. Because basically she would have been deemed a tainted witness in, in the Stephen Ward trial. But the judge, as I said, never divulged that information. So he was a really a biased judge who was determined to do the government's bidding here. You're the devil in disguise. Oh, yes, you are devil in disguise. Mm-hmm. You fool me with your kisses. You cheated and you schemed. Heaven knows how you lied to me. You're not the way you seem. You look like an angel Walk like an angel Talk like an angel But I got wise You're the devil in disguise Oh yes you are devil in disguise But then we have maybe the most famous part of the trial uh, this may, again, you may not know about this. It was when Mandy Rice Davis took the stand and she really didn't care what she said. You know, she she saw right through this. She was a sharp cookie and she's on the witness stand and the defense lawyer, Burge, pointed out that Lord Astor had denied that an, an affair or having even met her. And her famous response was, well, he would, wouldn't he? Yeah, yeah, and that people uh, supposedly laughed, right? Yeah, that's been misquoted as, well, he would say that, wouldn't he? But the actual quote was really, well, he would, wouldn't he? Now, I should say, July 22nd, 63, at the same time, this was when the Beatles were being photographed and filmed by Deso Hoffman in Western Supermare. You know, the, the, the film and the shots of them go-karting and in those Victorian bathing suits? Oh, yeah, there's, there's some great home movies from that, sure. Yeah. July the 30th of 63 the judge sir archie marshall there's another nice name for you sir archie marshall he began his extremely damning summing up you know as i said he was really biased against uh, ward and with that summing up later that night ward basically it was a case of paint it black you know everything turned to black for him he didn't see a way out from this he knew he was done and uh after he wrote letters to friends and to the authorities, 
he overdosed on sleeping pills and was rushed to the hospital. There's dramatic footage of him actually on the stretcher. Oh, yeah, I've seen that. And, and it is also it shows you how primitive uh, emergency response was in those days. I mean, they bas- basically loaded him into a gurney like a sack of potatoes and, yeah. uh, and kind of put a blanket around Would it him. have been different here in the States? Um, I, a little bit, yeah. I mean, they the, those were the days where they had these uh, Cadillac ambulances, okay? So they were like a station wagon, essentially. So you'd see the EMTs all kind of crouched over and kind of a terrible uh, ergonomic uh, working conditions but but yeah they would have at least had a, a you know some oxygen on them or something i mean they wouldn't just load them out like it's almost as if it was a a foregone conclusion well he's he's a goner anyway yeah you know, there didn't seem to be a great sense of urgency there well no and, and the thing is the very next day while he's still in the hospital because he, he did survive for a time and uh, while he's in the hospital the judge completed his summing up and the jury jury found him guilty in absentia of living off of Keeler's and Rice Davis's immoral earnings. They did acquit him of several other counts, uh, and the sentencing was postponed until he was fit to appear. He never did. He died on August the third without regaining consciousness. And August the third, sixty three. Do you know what happened on that date in Beatlesland? Their final cavern appearance. Oh, yes. Now, where's the tape of that? Some, you know, I really have faith somebody somewhere has that because that was such a famous gig. Well, what are you I, doing I'm, talking about it? Go and find it immediately. I try, you know. I've got all my feelers out. I, I wouldn't have mentioned it if I didn't think there was a reasonable chance that it existed. Ah. So if you're listening out there and you know who you are, yes, you contact see, me. Using this show for your... Immoral gains, <laughs> me and Christine. <laughs> That's right. I don't want to be accused of living off your immoral gains. I am more and more into Christine. I just thought she was a cute chick when I saw this. Now I'm really, we're like comrades in arms. I mean, talk about wronged people. Well, six days after Ward's death, that death is ruled a suicide by barbiturate poisoning. And among the notes that he left, and this is pretty gut-wrenching, he said, I'm sorry to disappoint the vulture. I feel the day is lost. The ritual sacrifice is demanded and I cannot face it. That same day, his remains were cremated. Wow. The vulture being? The vulture being the government, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. So the whitewash report that we discussed before, September the 26th of 63 is when it was finally published. And its conclusion, surprise, there were no security leaks, which I think is true. There weren't any security leaks and no evidence linking the government ministers to the associated scandals. Ward was deemed to be, quote, utterly immoral. His diplomatic activities were misconceived and misdirected. And there it was. There was the whitewash. You know, most people didn't buy into it. As you said, it was very similar in a way in terms of intent and reception to the Warren Commission report. Yeah, which was, you know, nobody believed. uh, Well, I should put it to you that nobody in government believed uh, here in America. And um, uh, I think people who can figure that bullets can't take right turns on their own and things like that. 
and bullets that smash into things usually get deformed as opposed to look perfect without a scratch on them. There's all kinds of little things that even uh, a non, you know, even if you don't believe in science in a sense, you yeah. can kind of see through what's going on. And so sometimes people uh, find these things necessary. I think you can read between the lines of Ward's uh, conviction uh, and and see that the his immoral decisions were getting in bed with uh, MI5. Yeah, well, exactly. And it, it wasn't done for immoral purposes, that. It's a very dark tale of government and how government is and how it looks out for itself. And the very idea of this whitewash report reminds me, if you ever send something by the post office and it gets crushed or lost, they do an internal investigation. And, you know, every single time I've had one of those done, they've found themselves not at fault. She loves you, yeah. here is, is that the Profumo Keeler Ivanov Triangle amounted to far less than MI5 pulling strings without the government's knowledge. And not owning up. Right. I mean, you see, the fact is that admitting that Ward had told this Mr. Woods at MI5 about the sex triangle back in 61, that would have involved MI5 in the scandal. So they told Lord Denning that they didn't know about it until January of 63, which is a complete lie. And that basically hung Ward out to dry. He wasn't a communist sympathiser by the looks of it. He was a patriot, but the government just needed someone to take the blame. And he had no way of proving his story when it turned out that Woods didn't exist. These types of agencies are very good at that sort of thing. They are uh, territorial 
They look out for themselves and their interests. They are um, the personification of power corrupts. So uh, it's it's uh, it's like Newspeak. They're the Ministry of Truth, right? And they're the ones putting out the right. most lies. Right. So and it's yeah, it's a yeah tragic, tragic tale. And maybe. you can see it from Ward's perspective. As I said, he was something of a social snob, and he had reason to be. He was mixing in these high circles, but he was also mixing in low circles. You know, it was a very eclectic mixture, and it turned out to be a potent one. But from his perspective. He had these great contacts. He didn't realize that he was operating out of his depth once he got involved with MI5. They were just playing him. Yes, of course. And he believed in a system because he'd been conditioned to. Uh, I think one of the great things about the 60s, the later 60s, and the sexual revolution and questioning authority and all of that stuff, it's, it's situations just like this that really this was a st- – the, a real storm in a teacup in many ways. This is just a, a man of uh, a middle-aged guy going through a middle-aged crisis who was a philanderer anyway and uh, finds some willing, desperate girl to uh, go along with him, thinking this is maybe a key to a better life for her. I mean, obviously, if she was into these younger guy, West Indian guys, um, there's there's not a lot of similarity between that. Uh, you know, a West Indian 25-year-old drug dealer and some middle-aged balding guy who's a member of parliament or, right. or a member of the cabinet. Right. So obviously it was it was for other reasons that she's involved, you know. But it's just sex. I mean, it's like, thank God later on these types of repression started to come down with... Uh, with people with common sense morals, if it were as as it were. Well, five you know? years I mean, later, just... the great British public is facing the cover of two virgins. Yes, exactly. Only within five years, and think about, and and there's plenty of outraged and shocked people. Of course, but it was the fact that he he could and he did do that. Uh, Lennon was famous for talking about uh, in the Playboy tapes. There's a. There's a bit, I'm sure, pretty sure it's the Playboy tapes, where he says, you know, the other guys in the band came up to him. And he said he, goes, he couldn't believe Harrison was saying, yes, but why did you do it, John? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so I mean, repression was everywhere. It's, it, it's, it's such a needless tale. And, um, and as I say, an opportunistic future prime minister manages to stick the camel's nose under the tent. Basically. So this is how things played out. October the 7th of 63, Macmillan's now under heavy pressure to resign. Wouldn't you know it, he suddenly falls ill with prostate problems on the eve of the annual Conservative Party conference. So he doesn't go to that. He's in the hospital. He undergoes surgery three days later. He actually believes he's going to die. Um, Turns out that was never going to be the case. A week later, October the 13th of 63, the Beatles topped the bill on Val Parnell's Sunday night at the London Palladium. I'll get you. One, two, three. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Imagine I'm in love with you. It's easy because I know. I've imagined I'm in love with you many, many, many times before. It's not like me. Think about you night and day. I need you, you and it's true. And I think 
say I'm never, 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 never blue By this point in October, the Profumo-related headlines are subsiding. And really, it's about, you know, now it's about Macmillan's replacement. Is he going to resign? It looks like he's going to resign. Who is going to replace him? And there were, you know, several contenders. So it's just interesting that even though, as I said earlier, the two, you know, strands were completely unrelated in most ways, you know, the Beatles and the Profumo scandal, but that their popularity is really kind of in britain in 63 at least it's peaking there yeah and as i said before the newspapers have been reporting faithfully about all the mania at the concerts and the fans lining up for hours to get their tickets so you know this has been a local and then a national phenomenon throughout 1963. Yeah. Now it's Sunday Night London Play Gym. Coming next will be the Royal Command performance. And it's right at that time that the Profumo story starts to subside, not because of the Beatles, but they intertwine beautifully. They do. So five days after the Beatles appear on Sunday Night at London Palladium... October the 18th, 63, Macmillan finally announces his resignation as Prime Minister, and he's replaced by the Foreign Secretary, Alec Douglas Hume. Um, Hume had basically been in government since the 30s as a junior minister, and again, part of the aristocracy. His name, by the way, Douglas Hume. Hume is spelt H-O-M-E, but in that wonderfully English way, it's not pronounced phonetically. Well, I only remember Douglas Hume because of that line in the song. You know, the you know Douglas Hume could outconsume William Friedrich Hegel. Fantastic rhyming, eh? Wow. And of course, he he was immortalized by John Lennon as Sir Alec Doubtless Hume. <laughs> we have Harrist Wilsod and the Duck of Edin Calvert. Goodness gracious! Yes. Uh, you know, there's not enough recordings of John reading that stuff. There's a I few, know. but there's not enough. So anyway, the following year, actually, Alec Douglas Hume would lose the general election to Harold Wilson. Ha ha, Mr. Wilson. I mean, ha ha, you know, whatever. December of 63, that's when Christine Keeler was found guilty of perjury at Lucky Gordon's trial. And she was sentenced to nine months imprisonment, would you believe? And she ended up serving six. Wow. So the aftermath. Profumo, having expressed his deep remorse to the Prime Minister, 
his constituents and the Conservative Party basically disappeared from public view. He never gave any interviews. Have to give him credit for that. In April of 64, he began working at Toynbee Hall for a charity supporting the most deprived residents of London's East End, which was a really worthy cause. There's stories that, you know, he would clean out the toilets there. Yeah, yeah. And he was a good friend to a lot of people there. And in 1975, he'd earn a CBE for this charitable work. He did remain married to Valerie Hobson until her death in 1998. And he himself passed away at the grand old age of 90 in 2006. Wow. Mandy Rice Davies, as you said, she went on to have something of a sort of cabaret career. I've seen film of her performing in Israel, of all places. And uh, she sort of stayed, I wouldn't say in the limelight, but she was always hovering there or thereabouts. And she died from cancer at age 70 in 2014. And Christine Keeler, as we know, died from chronic pulmonary disease at age 75 in December of 2017. Which inspired us to do this show. And the Beatles' connections continued because when the Beatles filmed Help and they did the scenes at Buckingham Palace, well, of course, the real Buckingham Palace wasn't used. So where did they use? Cliveden. Clifton, and, and there's yep. a little bit of home movie footage of them having a, a relay race on the last day of filming. That was actually the last location, uh, even though it shows up in a different part of the movie. That is the last few days of filming in early May of 65 was at Clifton. Yeah. Uh, there's a sort of weird picture of John Lennon holding up a sign in front of the, the pool with that devilish look on his face. Um, it's actually John holding up one of those life preserver rings and it says Cliveden on it and and Paul is looking through it and and you see George on the side of the swimming pool and of course that is the famous swimming pool where Keeler and Profumo first connected. And only John Lennon could be st- with the the visual uh, pun in a sense he's got the life preserver and the ships for several of the people went down with no life preserver. If you say so. Well, you know what I mean. Somebody throw me a lifeline there. I'm sure Christine needed it. I know Profumo needed it. Stephen Ward certainly needed it. Mm. And uh, there was nobody there to toss them the, the, the life ring. And another Beatles connection is, according to Keeler, the week before Ringo married Maureen in 1965, she ran into him at the Adlib Club. And they basically had a one-night fling. So what? Oh, I did. Wait a minute. I didn't hear about this. Ringo uh, hooked up with with Christine Keeler. According to her. uh, I mean, there's no evidence of it. Of course, Ringo's never spoken about it. I don't even know if he's ever been questioned about it. But I'm going to write that that one down because that's going to be a question I asked. Should I ever meet him? Now he deserves his knighthood. Once I heard that. Rise, Sir Ringo. (laughs) (laughs) I kill me. um, Christine Keeler interviews that we've included in the show, one was from BBC in 1980, which was the first proper interview she ever gave. And then in 1989, when the film Scandal came out, and, you know, that was about the Profumo affair, and one of her books that she co-authored was called Scandal, uh, obviously to cash in on the film. And uh, there was a documentary, which you can see on YouTube, and she was interviewed in that as well. And the theme song for the film, Dusty Springfield, did a song called Nothing Has Been Proved, which was written and produced by the Pet Shop Boys. They appear on it. This was a couple of years after they'd collaborated with Dusty and had a huge hit with What Have I Done to Deserve This, which was number two on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, This time around, it was credited solely to her, 
And there's another little Beatles connection in there because a couple of times it's mentioned Please Please Me is number one, which is referring to the album because the song talks about what the various participants are doing and it says that Please Please Me is number one. That's May of 63 and then it's reporting on events from August of 63 and again she sings Please Please Me is number one because it was still number one.
The Beatles, Naked. House production by Richard Buskin. Theme music by Craig Bartow. of my life, the Christine Keeler story. I was 20, I shall be 22 next February, and I was born in Hillingdon, near Middlesex, and near a place called Uxbridge. When did you first come to London? What age? I should say roughly about 16 or 17, I'm not quite sure. And um, I first came to London and had a job as a waitress, and then went on to Murray's Cabaret Club. That was the beginning of your career in show business. Yes. Um, what are your ambitions? At the moment, my ambitions are, are to become an actress. 